Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Mark Magnuson. Welcome to this week's episode of Weekend Ag Matters, brought to you in part by the Iowa Soybean Association. I'm Mark Magnuson. Riley Smith, Russ Parker, and Dustin Huffman will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. As a farmer, it is never easy to predict what your income is going to be for a given year. There are always differing external factors that are affecting the market, and of course the weather always plays a big role in whatever a farmer has to deal with in a given growing season. Seth Myers, the chief economist for USDA, says farm income should be strong this year, despite a lot of instability across the board from geopolitics to weather. When one looks at farm income and one looks at it at a very high scale, farm income looks pretty good. We're forecasting farm income to be pretty strong at USDA. But I think underlying this, there are a tremendous amount of questions that go along with this. For me, very positive in aggregate, but different outcomes for different crops. A lot of anxiety being produced when you think about where do commodity prices go from here and where do input prices go from here. Producers experiencing not only volatility on the output side, but on the input side as well too. Commodity prices have climbed for several months due in large part to global demand for U.S. commodities. It isn't war in Ukraine that really sparked all this run-up in prices. They've been rising since about fall of 2020. And a big element of that, one easy thing to identify, is China coming back into our market. And that really is, has been, a demand story. We've had pretty good global demand over this period. And you can see in here also issues of things we are used to in agriculture, like short crops, the vagaries of weather. But you can also see in here other things like war in Ukraine that are completely man-made and yet are are having large impacts on the agricultural sector. Myers says that prices have scaled back from the start of the Russian invasion, but the prices are still strong. He says that farmers are anxious about the future due to a number of reasons. Rental rates starting to increase. You can see very strong growth in land prices and rental rates over the last couple years. And rental rates may be a one-off, one-year decision, but land prices certainly aren't. And so folks are making decisions and we're seeing increases in land costs in a pretty volatile time. On the other side of that has been all those input costs. So this is from the latest farm income report. Every single one of these inputs has shown pretty big year year-over-year increases. That's Seth Myers, the chief economist for USDA at the recent Ag Outlook Forum in Kansas City. And Iowa Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag this week submitted comments to the Environmental Protection Agency regarding the proposed restrictions on atrazine, one of the most widely used herbicides in corn production. The proposed revisions by EPA would severely limit the use of atrazine. Secretary Nag tells the EPA that further restricting the use of atrazine will negatively impact pest resistance management and conservation efforts. In his comments... In October 2020, EPA received a petition alleging that the agency violated its duties under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act by issuing the atrazine reed registration without substantial evidence supporting the decision. That's all the time we have for news headlines this week. You can check out the rest of our daily news stories at iowaagnet.com. We'll go ahead and kick it over to Russ Parker now with his faith-based food for thought here on Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. In Sunday school the other day, the topic of change came up. And we had a fair amount of discussion about whether or not change is a good thing 
or a bad thing. And we all agreed that whether or not we liked change, or if it was good or not, change is inevitable. Perhaps Mark Twain summed it up the best, at least with some degree of wisdom, when he said, I'm in favor of progress, but it's change that I don't like. And I can remember some advice from the man who hired me. He said, Russ, there's nothing more constant than change. I recall listening to my grandparents as they recounted all of the changes in their lives. Running water, electricity, television, computers, flush toilets. But in the same story, they always talked about what a loaf of bread cost, or how much gasoline was a gallon, and the price of an automobile. I guess the recollections support the notion that change is indeed inevitable, and we have a choice of whether we like it or not. And change is not always what we see with our eyes, but also can be associated with how we think and reason. In fact, this dynamic is probably more powerful than the things that change physically, and particularly how we grapple sometimes with change in our minds. I'm reminded of a quote from C.S. Lewis, you can't go back and change the beginning. However, you can start where you are and change the ending. I'm sure the older I get, the less I like change. Life can indeed get comfortable when there's a routine and predictability is the rule for the day. But on the other hand, we all know that life doesn't care about being predictable. There will be a disruption, for lack of a better word, somewhere, somehow, someday. So, if it's inevitable that life will change, let's agree to make these changes positive. Perhaps this is a good starting point to impact the ending. In the 45th chapter of Isaiah, it says, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, but you do not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thank you, Russ. That's it for segment one on this week's episode. Coming up after this short break, Riley Smith will speak with state climatologist Justin Glisson. This is Weekend Ag Matters. Every detail matters when building a winning game plan. That's why the Cyclones and Hawkeyes rely on better, cleaner-now biodiesel to power their team buses on game days, delivering success on the field, in the field, and in the environment. Make biodiesel part of your game plan by visiting IASoybeans.com. Biodiesel. Request it. Grow it. Use it. This message brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soybean Checkoff. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's Riley Smith. We're here with Iowa State climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson to talk about a bit of the climatological patterns we've seen in Iowa recently. So first off, Justin, let's talk a little bit about the recent U.S. drought monitor. Uh, good morning, Riley. Nice to be with you as always. Yes, so we've seen expansion of drought across the state of Iowa. 
namely in that northwestern drought region that's been in existence for the last several, you know, last two to three years, but also expansion of D1 and D2 drought across southern Iowa. We see that signal as more of a short-term six to eight-month drought as opposed to that northwestern corner where we do have D3. Those are precipitation deficits on the order of uh, two to two and a half years. Right, and of course, you know, right now with harvest, we're not necessarily thinking about drought as much as we would be, but what are the impacts that we'll see from that drought going into the next crop year? Sure, yeah, so dry conditions are great during harvest. Now we have to be cognizant of those dry conditions uh, coupled with windy conditions and lower relative humidities because we can have field fires and we've seen those in Northwestern Iowa. So we want our farmers to be safe out there. Uh, but when we talk about drought and uh, harvest and a drier pattern, what we're looking for after harvest is to start replenishing those subsoil moisture profiles for the next growing season, especially before the ground freezes in winter. So having timely rainfalls or, or above average rainfalls in fall really do help replenish the tank for the next growing season. We saw that last year in October with the eighth wettest October on record with widespread drought across much of the northern uh, three quarters of the state. We're seeing a dry signal right now in the short term, so we really need something to jostle the large-scale atmosphere uh, to break this uh, dry spell that we've been in. That kind of leads into my next question. Was last year kind of an exception for the month of October, or is it usually, you know, we get some good rainfalls then? We do get some good rainfalls. We have 150 years of precipitation records for the state of Iowa, so being the eighth wettest October, is an extreme uh, having that much rainfall. In fact, we had a month to a month and a half's worth of rainfall over seven to 10 days. So if we look at the trends that we've seen over the last several decades, our falls are actually becoming wetter. Uh, so seeing this dry signal is, is not meshing with the trends, but uh, yes, the eighth wettest October last year was definitely uh, something we don't see that often. And then when is the point that we usually see that frost, you know, what's kind of the cutoff where we need to see rains before then? Yeah, so climatologically, the first killing frost and freeze, so the 32 and 28 degree uh, season ending frost or freeze are typically into the first and second week of October uh, for northern Iowa and then a little later for southern Iowa. So we're right in, you know, basically where we should be in terms of the possibility of a killing freeze. And with this cold front moving through uh, over the next uh, two days, there is an expectation out there that many stations will hit uh, 28 degrees or uh, lower. All right. And then, you know, say we don't get quite as much rain as we would like to see and we have a little trouble replenishing those uh, soil levels. You know, when can we see maybe a, a little bit of a makeup period for getting that water back in the ground? Yeah, you brought up when the soil freezes. So you, we can get a snowpack over winter time. And then we like to see what we call the 40-20 rule when we do have a good snowpack on the ground. As we start to move through late winter into spring, 40s during the day, 20s at night. So we have a gentle thaw and refreeze cycle as the subsoil moisture or as the profile starts to thaw out. So we get gentle infiltration of the melting snowpack as opposed to getting into a very uh, warm period with the frost still in the soil and you get a runoff into the stream system, then that's where we see uh, the possibility of uh, spring flooding. So we would, we would like to see a good snowpack, but also 
those ideal conditions to get infiltration of melting snowpack into the uh, soil profile. All right, and then of course, you know, we just got into fall, but we've already been talking about winter a lot today. Uh, what are we expecting to see there? I kind of heard rumblings earlier that we could see a little bit more of a mild winter this year. So uh, being a season out, it's it's difficult to look into that crystal ball to see what we're, what uh, the conditions could be. We're in the third year of La Nina, which going back to 1950, we only have a few of these events that have lasted that long. And again, La Nina is that cold sea surface temperature anomaly in the Pacific that impacts where the jet stream sets up, up over the United States. So in a typical La Nina winter, we would see above average precipitation chances in the Ohio Valley in the Great Lakes and then up into the Pacific Northwest, drier conditions across the southern states. Iowa just happens to be right in the middle of those two probabilistic features. Uh, so it really depends on where that jet stream sets up. Uh, but in the uh, modeling, we're seeing uh, the possibility of La Nina tailing off into winter, uh, which would give us a, a possibility of a pattern shift. Uh, so we're, you know, we're definitely going to see uh, snowfall events and we're definitely going to see uh, colder air outbreaks, uh, but we're a little too far out to really get uh, good guidance in terms of uh, wintertime conditions. All right. And then shifting a little bit to uh, something else that's you know, had a wide impact across not only the ag industry, but uh, the entire U.S. economy in general, is that the Mississippi River is uh, pretty low right now. And it's uh, really affecting the ability to get barges out into the Gulf and uh, get that shipping process going. You know, what could we hope to see from from weather patterns to kind of replenish those water levels while also maintaining the, the dry conditions that will allow harvest to keep going? That's uh, the million dollar question right there. It's always a balancing act between the hydrologics that uh, impact our stream flows and our river, river levels and harvest and drought. So you have all these, you have three balls in the air when you're juggling these things. Uh, we would like to see hydrologically um, above average rainfalls as we move into fall and early winter to help raise the stream flows, to help get more moisture into the subsoil moisture profiles. Soils are so dry that basically all the moisture that we get that comes out of the air uh, precipitation wise should soak in if it's a gentle rainfall. So we wouldn't see a, 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 an impact on stream flows initially. We would need that subsoil moisture profile to become saturated. So we do actually get runoff into those basins on the Mississippi and the Missouri. Uh, this is impactful for the upper Midwest as well. So all that water flows south. Uh, so it's not just what we see in Iowa, but also within the Mississippi basin that will impact those levels. Again, we see this reflected in drought. Expansion of drought means lack of rainfall and hence those river levels are low. All right, Justin. Well, lots of great information today. Uh, for those of our listeners and our viewers who would like to get in touch and just talk about the climate uh, patterns in Iowa, how can they do that? Yeah, great, great question. So Google Iowa Climatology Bureau. It'll bring you to the Department of Agriculture's website with my uh, climatology page. My direct phone line is 515-281-8981. And uh, shoot me an email if you like, justin.glisson, G-L-I-S-A-N, at iowaagriculture.gov. That again was Iowa State climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson, and that's it for segment two of this week's show. When we come back, Dustin will wrap up as he talks with Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. This is Weekend Ag Matters.
October is Pork Month, and in Iowa, we have no shortage of pork producers to celebrate. In all, there are 147,105 Iowa jobs created by the pork industry through direct, indirect, and induced jobs, and those jobs in turn create $8.64 billion in labor income. Make sure you support one of Iowa's most important industries by enjoying some farm-raised Iowa pork this month. This message is brought to you by your friends at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Huffman. Well, late last week I had the chance to sit down and talk with Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. We talked about several topics, including, including funding that could go to the EPA to help regulate the emissions from cattle and hogs. We also talked about permit reform, and then we talked about the EPA and their rulemaking process for the new RVOs. Here's what the senator had to say. Well, right now we're talking with Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. And Senator, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. Absolutely, Dustin. Great to be with you. So we're going to be talking about a few policies uh, that pertain to the EPA and one of them that you've introduced some uh, measures on with uh, Senator John Thune as well. Uh, pertaining to the emissions coming from livestock and how EPA wants to handle those, you want to enlighten us a little bit about the situation? Yes, absolutely. Our farmers and ranchers know that our livestock, they do emit methane. And it, it, so it's something that's quite common. And of course it occurs. Um, we know that. However, the EPA is now targeting those ranchers and livestock producers. They want to monitor the gas that is coming from our animals and then be able to use that information to impose fines. Um, so we know that this can be very costly for agriculture, animal agriculture. So Senator John Thune and I have uh, come together on a bill. And what we want to do is push back against the EPA, the federal government, and say no cow tax, um, no taxing the emissions coming off of our livestock. So we're getting a good response there. And we're, we're very hopeful that we'll see this move. Now, it's interesting because we know that you know, animal rights activists have been fighting any way they can to get, uh, you know, animal agriculture shut down and methane's been one of the things they target. Do you see their hand in any of this or is this just uh, going on those environmental lines? Well, it is the, the radical climate agenda folks on the left that are pursuing this. And of course, they will have something to do with it. Um, so whether it's animal rights activists, whether it's uh, those that have radical thoughts about our environment, um, all of that plays into this. And it, it rolls into what the left is trying to do to agriculture. So we are pushing back with this cow tax. And again, Senator Thune and I are, are just very adamant that we shouldn't be putting additional burdens on those that are producing food uh, for our nation and many other countries as well. So we are getting a good response. And again, I, I do think we'll get some traction on this. 
it's it's good because you know we we've heard from uh, one person I know has testified in both chambers is Dr. Frank Mitliner. He comes from California, University of California, and he has said multiple times that while animals do give off methane, what they take out of the the environment is making them basically carbon neutral. But it seems like the focus is only on what comes out right off the bat, not what they're taking out of the cycle over the year. Right. They're just focusing on one end and not the other. And that's very unfortunate. Yes, that it is. So another thing we're going to be talking about, obviously, too, is uh, some of permitting reform. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there and what you're trying to accomplish. Yes, we saw a move by Senator Joe Manchin on permitting reform uh, a few weeks back. And he came to this agreement with Chuck Schumer that if Joe Manchin provided his vote to pass what they call the so-called budget uh, or the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, then Joe Manchin would get his permitting reform bill. And while it sounds really good, the permitting reform bill, uh, what it did essentially was uh, finish the construction of a pipeline in West Virginia. And the permitting reform was really overblown, I think, in, in that bill, uh, because there were so many workarounds that any of our federal agencies would have had. So as one uh, gentleman in the uh, pipeline infrastructure industry said, you know, it was um, a bunch of nothing, a nothing burger. So what we want is real permitting reform. And I am encouraging everyone to take a look at Shelley Moore Capito's bill, which actually does provide regulatory relief and permit reform. Um, it also does have the West Virginia pipeline uh, in it, but at least we do see, see real progress when it comes to supporting those types of infrastructures. So how would the permitting reform work exactly? What's the benefit of having that in place? Well, what we want to do is make sure that permitting becomes easier. And of course, the state and local governments have a say in this as well. But what we have seen with the federal government, whether it's through the EPA, um, you name it, they place so many burdens upon uh, whether it's oil refiners, whether it's natural gas pipelines, um, whatever it might be, transmission lines for electricity, any time you get a permit through the federal government, it can take years upon years upon years. And so what we want to do is streamline that process, make sure that it is not too burdensome for us to modernize our infrastructure. All right. And speaking of EPA, I know, you know we've talked about ethanol and, and RVOs and blending requirements and all that. But now, for the first time, the EPA has control over the blending requirements, and they released what they call the SET. You want to give us your reaction to what they had to say there? Well, what we anticipate is that we will have all of the information we need uh, coming out by the middle of November. And what we want to see, and I continue to encourage the administration, is to make sure that those RVOs are strong and that we're moving forward. If they really want to see a reduction in greenhouse gases, they should be looking towards the biofuels industry to make those gains and those strides. So we're excited about the opportunity to work with the administration as long as they continue to support strong RVOs. Is there any indication from the EPA that they're gonna keep up that 
practice or what have you heard there? Well, we have heard from President Biden in the past, especially that when he was on the campaign trail, that he would be a strong supporter of biofuels. And so this is a great opportunity, uh, of course, for President Biden and the EPA to step up and live up to those obligations that they made to Iowa voters many years ago. So what does it mean, though, having the EPA make those calls now instead of Congress setting those uh, those levels? Yeah, this is a mixed bag, Dustin, because now um, those of us that were very strong voices when it came to supporting renewables in Congress, our voices are a bit silenced because the EPA will be that decider. Um, and we really don't have the bargaining power or push power that we did previously. So um, we're anxious to see how this plays out. But it really is dependent upon an administration's push uh, to get this done and make sure that we're keeping that commitment to renewables very high. So unfortunately, I, I hate that I, my voice is not going to be heard maybe as much as it has been in the past, especially with this administration. Uh, but we are going to ensure that we're doing all we can to support the renewables industry from our seats in Congress and make a difference where we can. All right, Senator, uh, if there's any last minute messages you have for our farmers, especially as they're rolling into this harvest season. Yes, absolutely. I've been out on the 99 County tour. I have one county left, um, Dallas County. So we'll be engaging very, very soon there. Um, but what I would say to our farmers and those that are out traveling on Iowa's roadways is please be safe. Harvest can be a very dangerous time of years for our farmers, our producers, but also for the traveling public if they uh, are traveling quickly and come up on a combine or a tractor and a grain cart. So please be safe out there. Be aware of your surroundings and let's go have a safe and bountiful harvest. Well, Senator, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. You bet, Dustin. Thanks so much. That again was Iowa Senator Joni Ernst here on Weekend Ag Matters, and that's going to do it for this week's show. We thank you all for tuning in. You can find all our content online at iowaagnet.com. For Riley Smith, Russ Parker, and Mark Magnuson, I'm Dustin Huffman. We thank you for tuning in. This has been Weekend Ag Matters.